0: This week on the show, we cover the FreeBSD Remote Process Plugin Final Milestone Achieved for LLDB, a tail scale for OpenBSD setup, macOS to FreeBSD migration, monitoring of OpenBSD machines, OpenSense 20.7.6 being released, and more in this last week's episode of 2020 of BSD Now. BSD Now episode 383, Scale the Tail, recorded for the 30th of December 2020. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap, the online backup for the truly paranoids. Go to tarsnap.com slash Now to check it out. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Kreuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome everyone to this week's episode, especially those still waiting for their PlayStation 5 to arrive. Uh, we have great headlines for you this week with the FreeBSD Remote Process Plugin Final Milestone Achieved. So that is over at Moritz uh, Systems and um, uh, by Kamil Ritarovsky, you probably heard uh, the name uh, in an earlier episode as in on this show. So um, the reason is Moritz Systems, this article tells us, uh, has been contracted by the FreeBSD Foundation to modernize the LLDB, that's the LLVM's uh, debugger, Uh, to modernize that support for FreeBSD. We are working on a new plugin, utilizing the modern uh, client-server layout that is already used by Darwin, Linux, NetBSD, and unofficially OpenBSD. The new plugin is going to gradually replace the legacy one. And the project schedule was divided into three milestones, each taking approximately one month, milestone one, was to introduce a new FreeBSD remote process plugin for x86-64 with basic support and upstream to LLVM. And a second milestone was to ensure and add the mandated features in the project, the process launch, the process attach for the uh, process ID, the process attach to the name of the process, userland core files, breakpoints, watchpoints, threads, remote debugging for FreeBSD, AMD64, and i386 versions. And the milestone three is to iterate over the LLDB tests, detect, and as time permits, fix the bugs. Well, (laughs) great. Uh, Ensure the bug reports for each non-fixed and known problem and missing man pages and update the FreeBSD handbook. Cool. And so they um, say that the third milestone was focused on fixing bugs and updating the test suite, state, and documentation. And they are proud to announce that this stage is finished as well. And therefore, drum roll, the whole contract is accomplished and timely and successfully. And so in this article, they cover the uh, summarization of the work and describe some of the more interesting areas and focus areas. So... um, race condition while copying watchpoints to new threads, for example. The primary goal of the third milestone was to go through failing tests and either fix them or at least document the failures and mark the respective tests as expected to fail. The first really interesting problem we found while investigating the commands watchpoint multiple threads test, there's a link to github on that, uh, the purpose of the test is to verify that watchpoints work when the respective variables are altered by a non-main thread so that they show the current values of the variables. Originally, the test was done in two variants, with the watch point being set before starting the new thread and after starting it. The first variant was supposed to verify whether LLDB correctly copies existing watch points to new threads as they were being started. And the second variant verified whether the watch point command correctly adds the new watch point to run uh, all the running threads. And there's a diagram to illustrate that. Um, the hardware-assisted watchpoints on x86 are configured by altering the state of debug registers. Uh, like other register sets, the values of debug registers are thread-local, and therefore the debugger needs to set them separately for every thread. Furthermore, new threads inherit the DR, the debug register, state from the parent thread on FreeBSD, and their original watchpoint watch, watch code relied on new threads having the correct uh, DR at start. However, there's a catch. The new thread is not reported to the debugger until it is actually ready to start. And so during this time, the debug registers are copied from the parent thread, and it continues execution. In fact, it is entirely feasible that the process is stopped due to breakpoints in the parent thread before the new thread is actually reported ready. This creates an ample opportunity for the user to set a new watch point, And this is precisely what happened to us during the test. And there is a section about simplifying the register reading and writing logic. So if there is a large switch case construct, for example, uh, that maps enumeration values into appropriate operations on system structures. So the whole article is illustrated with uh, nice depictions of how the things work and how they tie into each other. And I think this is a great read if you are in the debugging space and uh, in the developer space as well. Yeah, and
1: just a good feature to have for FreeBSD with uh, LLVM.
0: So yeah, uh, in the summary, they say that the third milestone finalizes their current contract with the FreeBSD Foundation. The introduction uh, or the, the changes introduced there are expected to be shipped with LLDB 12.0 and were uh, applicable in FreeBSD 13 when that comes out. Uh, during our work, the FreeBSD project gained numerous important improvements in the kernel, user land-based libraries like Dynamic Loader, and the LLVM toolchain FreeBSD support. Overall, experience of FreeBSD LLDB developers and advanced users on this rock-solid operating system reached the state known from other environments. Furthermore, FreeBSD-specific work resulted in generic improvements, enhancing the LLDB support for Linux and NetBSD as well. Cool. Now, after concluding the FreeBSD work, we're also planning to use our new experience to merge improvements back to the NetBSD plugin, which was used as a starting point for the whole FreeBSD work. And this work was sponsored by the FreeBSD Foundation. And we are grateful for this great development challenge from the FreeBSD project. Our next uh, story is about TailScale on OpenBSD.
1: So over on uh, Rakesh's blog, he sent. Uh, I spent some time setting this up uh, and thought I'd share the, the steps I went through. It's nothing fancy but putting together various pieces uh, to make it work. I assume you know what Tailscale is, if not you can check out their website, but basically it's a mesh network built on top of WireGuard which is a new VPN. Using it you can have all of your devices both within your LAN and outside of your network uh, all as if they were on one big LAN. Uh, And he says it's his new favorite thing. So Tailscale is open source and you can find the source on GitHub. Building it from source is quite easy. You can just clone the repo uh, and build it with Go. Uh, I tried to do that on the stable branch of OpenBSD 6.7, but that has Go 1.13 and you need 1.14 or later. So the first thing I did was switch to OpenBSD-CURRENT. That's pretty easy nowadays. All you have to do is run a sysupgrade and it will download the snapshot of current and install it and so on. With that out of the way, uh, we get back to downloading the source code and running the commands. Uh, This will install Two binaries in your home directory's go slash bin directory. Uh, copy those over to user local bin to have them available system wide. I'm show how to do that. But next, you want to create a startup script for tailscale d, the daemon, uh, to automatically run as part of your RC scripts. So if you create the file in etcrc.d tailscale d and uh, put this bit of shell in there, it basically defines uh, the daemon and where to store the state and what socket to use and all that other flags that you might need, uh, and said that you know this rc script should run in the background and it doesn't have a reload command and so on, and it basically just specifies how to start and stop the daemon and check that it's running. Set the uh, permissions on the file and enable it with rcctl, and now at startup it'll run tailscaled. Uh, initially I had put more <coughs> uh, info about deciding to move to separate section here, but so the rc script has the three sections and he kind of explains what those do. If you're not familiar with the, the way rc scripts work on OpenBSD, he also found uh, a problem using the tail scale uh, dash dash cleanup option uh, and notes that someone else has filed a bug report on that already and it's likely to be fixed. This is since the the tunnel driver uh, cannot have arbitrary interface names, you must name them ton, zero, one, two, three, four, etc. cetera for an explicit interface name, or tun if you just want it to make a new one and attach to it. If you choose tun as an interface name, the environment variable wg for wireguard underscore ton underscore name underscore file is defined, uh, and then that will contain the name of the actual interface. Uh, and he also has some updates on the, the a link to that bug report on the cleanup issue and notes about how we rearranged the blog post since the original post. But it looks like uh, pretty interesting. I I've used WireGuard a couple of times, and I'm very pleased with it, and I've tried to set up a different VPN software that supported Mesh. I think it was called Tink, Uh, and it wasn't working so well for me. So uh, TailScale seems quite interesting, as the simplicity of WireGuard with uh, a Mesh setup could be quite interesting. Mm.
0: Especially in the pandemic times, uh, when people need to reach into the office sometimes and combine or Plug in stuff from home, same, in the same way. Yeah, so try it out and see how it works for you. All right, we're in the news roundup for this week, and we have found a nice migration report uh, from a uh, truck. Uh, let's see, uh, Antarctic Martanian—that's pronounced correctly—from macOS to FreeBSD migration, aka why I left macOS. And he writes that, I think the title tells a lot about the story I'm going to tell you. So yeah, it's a migration story, but nevertheless interesting. Uh, This is not a technical documentation for how I migrated from macOS to FreeBSD. Uh, This is a high level for why I migrated from macOS to FreeBSD. So not so long ago, I was using macOS as my daily driver. Oh, I see where this is going. This might affect me as well. Um, So yeah, the main reason why I got a MacBook was the underlying BSD Unix and the nice graphics it provides. Also, I have an iPhone, but they were the same reasons for why I left macOS. Ah, I did not want to write this post right after the migration. I wanted to take my time, use FreeBSD Daily, see if I will ever miss macOS. Uh, So here's a tweet from him uh, from like eight months ago. Uh, that says, every four months I look at my systems, servers, laptops, desktops embedded, to see if there is anything suspicious, if anything got hacked, etc. Man, I did not realize that macOS is that complicated. Why is there a student D running? I don't even use classrooms. End of tweet. Okay, so let's look at it this way. MacOS is becoming less Unixy every year. Uh, date. The date command is outdated. Oh wow, that's <laughs> that's a nice pun there. Uh, there are 100 and more Unix processes running by the time the system is booted. Most of them are useless for the general user. It has no native package manager. At least MacPorts, Homebrew package source is out there. And for a power user, there's no proper documentation. Have you ever checked the FreeBSD handbook? Everything's right there. Okay, the nice graphics part. Have you seen the latest and greatest, Big Sur? It feels like eye candy. It's not made for power users at all. Everything seems to be a distraction now, even the icons. I'm no UI guru, but bringing iOS to the desktop is not for everyone. So I decided to move to FreeBSD. This is where many people will tell me, "Okay, but not everything works outside the box. True, but which OS works outside the box these days anyway? Windows is still a nightmare. Setting up macOS took me three days the last time. Linux takes way more if you're building it from scratch and setting up FreeBSD took me uh, three days. However, I meant that I will not need to change it again for a very, very, very long time. Every time Apple pushes an update, my pf.conf and automount configs got broken on macOS. They either got deleted or they moved somewhere. Well, last two times, it just got deleted. On FreeBSD I upgraded from 12.1 release to 12.2 release, and nothing broke. In- this case, uh, there were many changes. FreeBSD just asked me what to do about them. Let's come back uh, for a second. Unix is outdated and Apple does not care about it. Fancy graphics are too fancy now. Doing forensics is almost impossible. And the hardware is, well, not the best out there. Have you ever disassembled a MacBook Pro? It takes two hours to change a battery. while well, <laughs> I can reassemble my Dell latitudes and Thinkpads in 30 minutes. Eh, that's true. So there was no reason to stay here anymore. I had to migrate. The question is, where linux has systemd not my favorite thing out there windows is privacy nightmare that left me with two major options Linuxes without systemd like the Gentoos in my case or bsds since i run freebsd server anyway i just migrated to freebsd and uh, here's a short review about running freebsd on a thinkpad t480 uh, wi-fi works not the fastest but fast enough graphics works touchpad works on multiple fingers, and very configurable via sysctl. Uh, Bluetooth does discovery and pairs. I still have to try it with non-Apple headsets. Uh, COVID-19 era, Zoom, Google Hangouts, Jitsi, and all other web RTC-based video conferencing software uh, works via web as well. And thanks to the linux later and the latest changes made there, uh, I can watch Netflix as well. So there's a screenshot for comparison and for <laughs> as proof. Uh, most importantly, it's free and open source. It's been one month and one day since I last touched my MacBook Pro. So what do I miss? Better Bluetooth support, faster Wi-Fi. Hmm. That's it. That's all missing on a FreeBSD laptop these days. Wi-Fi can do 48 megabits per second according to ifconfig, but I usually get around 10 to 12 megabits per second. Okay, BT, Bluetooth, pairs with my Apple AirPods, but I wish it worked till the end. Having a nice workstation or laptop is not an easy thing. Using macOS means living by Apple rules. Windows is the same for Microsoft. The BSDs gave me the power to be as free as possible. During the next weeks, I'll try to blog about the actual setup. And PS, dear Apple employee, in case you're reading this, please tell your management to update their BSD Unix layer. Some of us still care. Some of us are not just Docker people. Some of us are not just... Quote modern unquote web developers, thanks in advance. That's all, folks. Yeah, I think this is a, a fairly accurate description of the current state of the Apple ecosystem. I mean, they're in the in the process of migrating to a newer thing, um, but if you're stuck in between there, then it's kind of uh, the thing that can drive you away. I can definitely relate to that. But yeah, as as you mentioned, a lot of things work, so you probably won't miss much. So next up,
1: we have uh, another great post by our friend Chris Seiberman. We should get him on as
0: an interview, Right, like next year, like yesterday. Yeah.
1: His post here is our monitoring for OpenBSD machines as it is in November of 2020. We have a number of OpenBSD firewalls in service along with some other OpenBSD servers for things like VPN endpoints. And I was recently asked how we monitor PF and the overall network traffic on them. I had to disappoint the person who asked with my answer because right now we mostly don't. (laughs) Although this is starting to change. Due to past problems, we've long run scripts from cron that look for the PF state tables getting close to full and send us an email if that happens. These scripts started out simple, just a there are x states email, but it has grown more elaborate over time. The current version sends us information on what looks to be our top traffic source and saves a complete pfctl-ss dump for us to look at later. The script predates our current Prometheus system and hasn't been hooked up to that. More recently, we've written some scripts to generate Prometheus metrics for things like VPN usage information. These work by parsing the output of the standard OpenBSD tools like CTL. As an extension of this work, we've also ended up writing a program that parses pfctl-ss Uh, output to track more details about the PF state table usage and publish them as Prometheus metrics. This gives us a better picture of what the PF state table levels are like, uh, whether a problem showed up all of a sudden or slowly ramped up, and so on. It's also uncovered some odd behavior by various hosts that don't rise to the level of filling up our state tables and provoking emails from our monitoring script. Recent versions of OpenBSD, from 6.6 onward, have a reasonably current version of the Prometheus host agent available from their package collection, and we've installed it on some of our OpenBSD uh, machines that are recent enough. This seems to work okay, although you don't get as many host metrics as you get with Linux, uh, and Prometheus hasn't caught up with the latest OpenBSD changes just yet. We do get uh, network usage metrics, which is useful for firewalls and VPN servers, and CPU state metrics reveal that our 6.6 SMP uh, L2TP VPN server spent a lot of time in kernel spin locks. Uh, OpenBSD 6.6 has or had version 0.18. Whereas 6.7 has one, uh, 0.18.1, and 6.8 has version 1.0.1, uh, the current version of the host agent. As I write this, uh, it's possible that the 6.7 or 6.8 versions have been patched to support the new CPU, uh, the new spin CPU state, but I suspect not. Anyway, for network volume and traffic monitoring, our strong impression is that you usually want is something that supports S Flow. We haven't investigated this on our OpenBSD machines or attempted to gather any sort of metrics similar to this, although the Prometheus host agent will give you per interface information. One reason for the relative low uh, interest in our firewalls is that many of our interesting flows are inside a single internal network uh, as they slash around our switch infrastructure and don't go through the firewall. In the long run, I think it's likely to run the Prometheus host agent for all of our OpenBSD as we upgrade them to be modern versions of OpenBSD. The host agent provides reasonably useful information, and since it's available via packages, it's easy to install. We'll probably expand our PF scraping to cover more firewalls uh, since it's also easy, although I'll have to make it uh, deal with NAT for our perimeter firewall. Unless a real need arises, I don't see us uh, adding more extensive PF monitoring and network traffic or network volume uh, monitoring. But now that I've uh, done some Internet research, Uh, I see that there's pflow. uh, So maybe there are some easy to deploy tools out there, but it's not a priority for us right now. Uh, We would just make uh, our own BSD setups more complicated.
0: Okay. Yeah, I've been playing around a little bit with Prometheus, but I haven't used it that much to actually monitor things and like uh, a long-term thing, just playing around with it and see how it works.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, I did a bunch of work uh, recently to expose more metrics from ZFS. Uh, and I've I've not had a chance to use those for very much so far, but knowing that you have, you know, amount of work going on for every data set already as a, a
0: metric is really helpful. Mm. Yep. Yeah. So, but speaking of uh, fireballing things, uh, OpenSense got a new release in this next item. Uh, 20.7.6 has been released, and in their release notes, they write, Dear all, this update brings the usual mix of reliability fixes, plugins, and third-party software updates. FreeBSD, HardBSD, PHP, OpenSSH, StrongSwan, Suricata, and syslog-ng, amongst others. Please note that Let's Encrypt users need to reissue their certificates manually after upgrading to this version to fix the embedded certificate chain issue with the current signing CA switch going on. Uh, the mail backup plugin is currently not available pending a response from the maintainer. Users are advised to avoid using it for the moment. And the full patch note reads that the system parts got no longer enforcing an alias names in gateways. Uh, they added steps into icon on lock lines when filtering, as well as adding current CPU load progress bars. Ooh, nice. In the firewall, they got allows, uh, allowing for larger selection and live logs, correctly selecting current IPv6 field length or fields in get interface gateway. And added validation for IPv6 ICMP combined with INET. Uh, reporting has traffic graphs replacement using iftop, so that should give you a bit more information on the top side. Uh, OpenVPN got calculation for first network address as gateway address when only if config underscore local is given. Uh, some web proxy updates, plugins, the new version of the ACME client, OSFFR, and OS mail backup as mentioned. Uh, not available. Couple source fixes, uh, parsing of netmap leg- legacy, uh, NMR pointers to NMR ring ID, uh, minor mis- miscellaneous netmap improvements, and zero initialized variables in HBSD's PAX Zec vGuard. Ports updates Kerberos 5 is at 1.18.3. Uh, NSS, OpenLDAP, OpenSSH, PHP, StrongSwan, Ricarda, as mentioned, got all uh, later versions. So yeah, they close with stay safe and that is a good recommendation <laughs> these times in many ways. So yeah, uh, grab the update and get uh, into a safer state. And
1: yep. uh, then we have a, an update from Nicebug, the New York City BSD user group. Uh, they said we are delighted to announce our first meeting for 2021. It will be January 6th at uh, 6.45 Eastern, which is 23.45 UTC, uh, and it will be hosted via Zoom. And their special guest this time is Michael W. Lucas, who's going to talk about uh, TLS and orcs. Yeah. Uh, so it'll be about two of his books that are coming out. Uh, and I think by then he's actually expecting to have the TLS book finished. Uh, so he'll be able to talk about all the fun he's had with that. Mm. Uh, so Lucas will be doing some reading from his forthcoming book on TLS. We promise that this meeting will be entertaining. Although Nicebug can make no assurances about the accuracy of the data. And while his jokes will likely drop like lead zeppelins, we will be—we are convinced that it will be well entertaining. So for the Zoom meeting details, they ask that you RSVP via the nicebug.org so that they don't get uh, trolls in the meeting or whatever. But they say, as we had a successful December meeting called For the Love of Trough with uh, James K. Lowden, and we also field questions over IRC on uh, the Nicebug channel on FreeNode. Wishing all of you a safe and socially distanced holiday season and a fantastic twenty twenty one from everyone at Nicebug. And uh, you know, special safe holidays uh, wishes to us at the podcast.
0: Oh, great! <laughs> Thank you. Uh... We can return that, of course, to all the nice bug people. If you have some time over the holidays, then check out their archives. They have some great talks in there and uh, that's there should be something in there that's interesting to you. This episode is sponsored by Tarsnap. And Tarsnap gives you the, you know, sleep full nights, not sleepless nights that come with a backup that is encrypted and can be retrieved from AWS in this case and no one else can retrieve that data because it's encrypted and no one can make sense of it unless you have the key. And the key is only stored in your machine. So at the beginning of the new year, you might want to start doing your taxes. Yes, it's not the most fun thing there. But could be that you are missing this one document, but you luckily had it backed up in Tarsnap. And so you can retrieve it from there and uh, hand that in. So um, that is done if you're starting the backup originally. All the data that you want to back up is calculated and new unique blocks are being you know found out in there by segmentation and deduplication in an internal process then it's compressed and only this compressed version so this is much less than your original data was typically is then encoded and encrypted still all on your box and then once this process is finished the encrypted version is stored on the cloud in this case again amazon but um, that is much less data. And the price that you pay for this bandwidth use or the storage is just so small, you can even store gigabytes, terabytes there without um, going bankrupt. And so this is what TarSnap provides. And again, the next day you do your regular update or the next hour, doesn't matter. TarSnap figures out, oh, what has changed between the last time you did the, the backup and this current backup, and only sends the bo- the blocks that have changed. And so that saves you a lot of time and gives you still the peace of mind that you have a latest version of your backup and get your files back in case you need them. Hopefully never. Check out TarSnap and all the clients that it provides for the BSDs, the Linuxes, the MacOSs, Cygwin subsystem for Windows, any kind of system does give you no reason to not make backups using TarSnap. All right, here is the section that is giving you the information that you need because we answer your questions and give uh, feedback in case we can help you. We uh, like to do this here. And again, even in the new year, you should also repeat this tradition that we have now. So feedback at bstnow.tv is your email address to send us anything about uh, topics, show ideas, past episodes, anything that was on your mind. Uh, the first one that we have in this week is uh, sci, su, sci, I think, uh, .so files, sci. and goes like the following. Hi guys, as long as I can remember, shared library names have used a .so suffix and static libraries have used a .a suffix. I was wondering, do you know what the what um, the, ori- the origin of that naming convention is. Is there some ISO standard somewhere that calls uh, of that uh, for that sort, or is it just an informal convention from the early days that carried through?
1: Okay, so when you're compiling... Uh, I don't know any of the history or any of this for sure, but this is my understanding, which could be wrong. Uh, when you're compiling stuff, generally you have your .c files and you compile those into objects, which are .o. Uh, and so... When you have objects that are bits of code that are meant to be shared uh, between multiple programs like a library that's became shared object which eventually became shared library. Um, I think the big difference with a shared object is the idea is that instead of if two different programs are going to use it instead of each having a copy they share the one copy uh, and this can save disk space and memory and so on. Uh, so .o for object file became .so for shared object uh, and that's where that came from. Now the .a is a little more interesting because .a's are actually an archive. They're something like a tarball but not a tarball. Yeah. So the tool that manages these is called AR or archiver. Uh, And so the AR utility creates and maintains groups of files combined into an archive. Uh, Once an archive has been created, a new file can be added to it and existing files can be extracted, deleted, or replaced. Uh, So it sounds pretty normal. Uh, And so generally uh, these archive files are just those non sharedo files grouped together into a single file uh, in a way where it's possible to just skip to the one you want or whatever. And then your linker will then use those bunch of files inside the archive uh, to get the bits of code it needs from that archive and compile it into the binary that includes all of the code uh, from those object files, but only the code you actually use. Right, rather than like the .a library can be very large. It's like all the code for the entire library. Well, if you only use a third of the calls in the library, then uh, the linker can optimize that and only include the bits of code that are actually needed. So the .a uh, comes from the archive. So it's kind of like a .zip or a .tar, a .a from the tool AR. Um, And does it have any more history here? Uh, and the AR tool is specified by POSIX, uh, and the AR utility first appeared in AT&T UNIX version 1, and back in FreeBSD8, uh, Kai Wang re-implemented AR and ran lib using the Streaming Archive library, or libarchive, uh, and the ELF access library, libelf uh, tools. But yeah, so uh, they're called .a because that's the file extension for AR, the archiver. And that's why they seem to be, instead of being like TO or something for static object, it's uh, actually because it's a, uh, something similar to a tar file of the uh, um, the object files.
0: Yeah. And so that's the, the history. So
1: that's the most that I know about it. But somebody who knows more about this stuff or uh, more of the history might be able to provide a better answer.
0: Oh, yes, I was thinking of Losh when I read that, so he could probably blog about it easily or just talk about it from way back when. But yeah, these are the things that man pages can tell you, and typically this is um, what also you would do when you're doing this kind of programming. Okay, so thanks for this question. And next up we have uh, Ben with a mixer volume feedback question. So Ben writes, hi guys, I'm a big fan of the show and have been listening for the last couple of years. Oh, great. Uh, I've gone from someone that's never used any open source operating system to just neatly or recently configuring FreeBSD from scratch to run on an old Dell Precision laptop, which is my current daily driver. Hey, great. You have helped me greatly. Oh, sure. Glad to be of help. And uh, further on. The, my question today is about the Mixer program, which I use to change the volume on my laptop. When I change the Mixer volume from, say, 100 to 100 to 50, 50 by using the command MixerVol 50, the volume on my laptop goes from full volume to absolutely no volume being produced. Is this the expected result of this command? I thought that the change from 100 to 50 would result in a 50% decrease in volume, but that's not the case at all. Perhaps the change in volume isn't linear? Shrug. And so he provides the command mixer output for us to review.
1: Yeah, I don't actually know. Uh, first obvious thing to try is change it from 100 to 99. And if all the sound goes away, that is probably just a bug where uh, attempting to adjust it is is messing something up. Uh, and then, you know, I would try 90 and then 80 and 70 and see if it seems to be going down nicely uh, or if it's just gone messy on you. Yeah. So it Uh, doesn't write what kind of... I think I've only ever tried to turn mine up. I've never actually tried to turn the volume down.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So always full. Um, So it doesn't write what kind of uh, hardware is detected in the... Like, is it the HDA sound or is it... Yeah, but I think in the the end,
1: the mixer part is generally before the part that would have a, a specific driver or something.
0: Yeah, because otherwise, so I run a bunch of servers. So the first thing that I do in RC.conf is Mixer enable uh, to to know. Uh, but uh, for the desktop. It... So also apparently the
1: current version of Mixer uh, was written by John Mark Gurney, who we could always ping on Twitter if uh, we are seeing it not do what we expect. Oh, yes. Why don't we try that?
0: So maybe he has the answer.
1: But yes, so my first thing would be try changing it from 100 to 99 and see what happens. And then try, you know, 90, 70, 60, 50. It it might be that it's just non-linear or something or what. But, you know, if just changing it to 99 means no sound output, then uh, something might be slightly messed up. In particular, the thing to look at is what your default sound output device is as well. One thing I learned is that there's a file you can cat. If you cat slash dev slash snd stat, it will tell you Uh, more about what sound devices you have and how they're configured and it might give you an idea of what to look at. There might also be a couple of
0: sysctls with descriptions that match. Yes
1: there's some sysctls for deciding what sound output devices is the default and so on Mm. because I know on my x220 that's on my exercise bike I have this change to use the USB speakers I've plugged into it so that I can hear better while exercising.
0: Hmm. Yeah, so that could be... Or the handbook gives you a couple of uh, interesting things in the sound section. Not sure how current that is, but maybe that that explains at least the the volume change. Okay, Uh, if anyone else has a solution for this or has encountered this same issue, then let us know, and we will uh, cover this in a future episode and link back to this one. Uh, So thank you, Ben. Uh, Hopefully your uh, experience with FreeBizD or the free open source uh, country will be um, more interesting. And let us know uh, about future issues and uh, definitely report back uh, if anything uh, you are doing is kind of interesting for us in the show. Okay, then last but not least is pro bono with a live CDs question. So the question is about the ZFS for FreeBSD live ISOs. Um, and it starts with, thanks for this inspirational podcast. Sure, you're welcome. Glad you're enjoying it. Uh, so here's the question. Life systems, or life CDs, as they used to be called, have been a passion of mine for a long time. Recently, I got drawn to FreeBSD thanks to the availability of several life systems, including FuryBSD. That is discontinued now, but, you know, there is uh, a successor. Uh, well, I'm, everything from it is still there. It's just the
1: one person who is organizing it, uh, didn't want to do it anymore yeah
0: so yeah the cds you can still get um as you reported in one of your last episodes oh yeah uh the fury bsd live isos are now fully zfs based however the entire contents of the live file system get transferred to ram at boot time in order to make it read write this takes a long time and takes up a lot of ram are there better ways there is unionfs a kernel module that implements a union file system but Apparently, it's not stable enough to be viable as a root file system. So that's unionfs.ko. Um, this got yeah, I know some people are looking at unionfs uh, to, to
1: make some improvements. So that
0: might get better soon. Uh, but anyway, continue with the question. Yeah. So this got him thinking, uh, could one make some clever use of ZFS features to combine a read-only medium, like the live ISO, with a read-write medium, a RAM disk, to effectively construct a read-write root file system? Uh, Something along the lines of, make a ZFS file system, snapshot that. At this time, it becomes read-only. Store this on the read-only ISO medium. At boot time, clone it. Cloning should be near instant and will result in a writable clone. Or, second solution, uh, construct a ZFS pool from a combination of read-write ISO and read-only RAM disk devices, similar to how one can combine a spinning drive and a solid-state disk. Do you think it is possible? If not, how much is missing to make it possible? Greetings from Darmstadt, Germany. Hey. That's close to me. Yeah. So the problem with ZFS here
1: is that uh you know, it doesn't really have the concept of some read-only and some read-write drives being in the same pool or something. So like, yeah, you can you can make a snapshot and then clone it and then you could roll back or delete the clone. The problem is, you know, ZFS needs to store that and even if you could mark The ISO is part of the pool but read only. Um, ZFS likely be very confused by when you import it and the disks aren't at the same transaction group. Uh, And it would try to solve that and so on. So, ZFS doesn't really have a great way to deal with this. So, what you want is a snapshot. Well, the real question is do you want a live CD that's actually, does it actually have to be on read only media? Like nowadays, how many of your live CDs are actually running off a CD rather than a USB
0: stick. stick images. Because
1: obviously with ZFS, you could snapshot the system, run it, and then roll back to the snapshot and undo anything that did change while still actually having the medium be read-write, and you could decide some of those changes you want to keep or something. Ah, so you could definitely make a system that mostly feels read-only, but by using read-write media, actually be able to solve most of these problems because the other interesting one obviously is zpool checkpoints Uh, so when you create a checkpoint of the pool remember you can only have one checkpoint and that when a checkpoint exists anything you overwrite doesn't actually get freed even if you have no snapshots although you're probably going to have snapshots in this case anyway they're not really meant to be used long term but for a live system would be interesting so if you created your thing took a checkpoint of the pool then when you use it any changes you make can get thrown away by rolling back to the checkpoint. This includes, unlike uh, snapshots, a checkpoint will even undo creating new file systems, will undo renaming data sets, it will undo everything, even adding other disks to the the system. Uh, So a checkpoint uh, might be an interesting way to make a live CD, and it would just auto-roll back to the checkpoint at boot, destroying all the other data. So it'd be kind of semi-persistent, I guess, like It would work very much like a live CD, except for it wouldn't actually rely on the media being read-only. In the past, for a live CD, that made sense uh, because that was the main medium we use. But now, uh, most of my computers don't have an optical drive, actually. (laughs) Yeah. And so even if I want a live system, it's more likely to be on a writable media like a USB stick where I'm just going to want to be able to roll back to a pristine image and not necessarily require... The ability to work off read-only media. There are still cases where you need to read-only media, like I know upgrading certain systems that run in banks and so on are not allowed to bring any writable media into the secret computer room, because it's the best way to ensure you can't take any data out with you is if you're only allowed to bring read-only media in with you with the system upgrade on it, and you have to do the upgrade from that. You know, there's no internet, and you're not allowed to bring anything writable in with you.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's like Mission Impossible 1, right? The island system there. (laughs) So
1: it can, there are still use cases for completely read-only media, but for a live desktop, checkpoints and snapshots
0: might be more flexible and provide a more useful final uh, product. Yeah, I remember before ZFS got more popular, you could do with a hast something, the high-available storage, where one part of it was the volatile storage and the other part was non-volatile storage. And so it would... I don't think
1: HAST really has something like that.
0: Like where you have like two uh, parts and one is...
1: So HAST is, is basically when you do a write, it writes to both hard drives. And the second hard drive is in another system. It's basically a mirror across two computers.
0: Yeah. And one would be writable and the other one read only. And so...
1: That would break UFS. So I don't think that would work that way. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so UnionFS is interesting for that type of thing, uh, but yeah, is not known to be great currently, but maybe there'll be some improvements there. But I think for most use cases, ZFS might be the right answer, just not actually depending quite so much on it being read-only.
0: Yeah, so that's the, yeah. Uh,
1: and that, you know, there are limitations to what snapshots can do, but Zpool Checkpoint is probably the answer to that. Uh, and it also means, unlike completely read-only media, you do have the option of, discard the checkpoint and make a new one uh, if you decide the system is in a state that you do want to keep.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. so um, if someone else knows uh, anything, they built maybe something like that or have a solution for this, uh, let us know and we will cover it uh, in this space as well. So that uh, wraps up this episode and I think this year as well for us. Uh, it's been interesting. Uh, we did uh, move on to be a solo um, podcast. Uh, that was that was interesting, but uh, we were there in the usual way for you, so you probably didn't notice much. And of course um, yeah, pandemics and all. but let's not look backwards. let's look let's look forward. and of course we wish you a great 2021. Uh, success, success, health, luck. Um, may all the things that you plan to do become uh, successful and yeah you will definitely hear us in this space as normal the same date same time Uh, and yeah all the best and see you or you hear us next time